0: pastor and author Warren Wiersbe said most Christians are being crucified on a cross between two thieves yesterday's regret and tomorrow's worries that's not only true but i would also add that is actually by our choosing because just to be clear worry is a choice no one no one forces us to worry right of course There are situations and circumstances and uh, difficulties of every stripe that are at times thrust upon us. That is certainly true. But how we respond to those difficulties, well, that is a choice that we make. And apparently apparently it's a life-changing and at times life-threatening choice at that. According to the American Institute of Stress, I was reading this week, 77% of people experience stress that affects their physical health. 73 percent of people have stress that impacts their mental health. 48 percent of people have trouble sleeping because of stress. Another study by the Global Organization for Stress reports that 75 percent of Americans experienced moderate to high stress levels in the past month. Stress is the number one health concern of high school students. 80 percent of people feel stress at work and of those who Uh, experienced elevated levels of stress, 45% experienced irritability and anger, 41% fatigue or low energy, 38% experienced a lack of motivation or interest in things, 36% anxiety or nervousness, another 36% have headaches due to stress, 34% feel sad or depressed, 26% have indigestion, acid reflux or upset stomach from stress, 23% have muscle tension, and 21% experience appetite changes. And yet, perhaps uh, the most alarming of all, the CDC says that stress leads to heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, depression, anxiety disorder, cancer, and a host of other illnesses. The CDC goes on to report, listen, that 110 million people die every year as a direct result of stress. That's seven people every two seconds. We are literally worrying ourselves to death. When Wierspe says most Christians are being crucified on a cross between two thieves, yesterday's regret and tomorrow's worries, he couldn't be more right. We are indeed being crucified by stress, by worry. And what is so incredulous about that is the fact that the worry that is killing us is a choice that we make. We're going to see that in our text this morning as we work our way through the second song of the Psalter, Psalm 2. We went through Psalm 1 last week because, listen, although the, the psalm itself does not identify an author, we know from both Acts uh, 25 and Acts 13.33, Acts 4.25 and 13.33, that David is, in fact, the author. And listen, uh, If there was ever a human being in all of human history who had good reason to worry, David would have to rank high on that list. We talked about it last week. In addition to being guilty of murder and adultery, he made a complete disaster of his own family. David's own brothers thought he was next to worthless, 1 Samuel 17, 28. He was mocked by his enemies, 1 Samuel 17, 42 through 44. He was hunted relentlessly by his own king who wanted him dead, 1 Samuel 19. Listen, David's own wife, his own wife despised him in her heart, 2 Samuel 6, 16. And his own son tried to kill him and take his throne, 2 Samuel 15. You want to talk about a guy who had every reason to worry It had to be David. And yet, when you read this second psalm, we find a man who seemed to understand that your circumstances, no matter how profoundly difficult they may be, your circumstances do not determine your response to those circumstances. You do. Okay? We alone determine how we respond to difficult circumstances. The fact is, worry is a choice. And as we'll see, Through all of his own life experiences, as hard as they were, David learned the secret to living without worry because he learned how to take refuge in God. Because look, uh, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how difficult your life becomes, no matter how overwhelming your circumstances may be, when you take refuge in Him, in Christ, you don't have to worry. And we're going to see why in this psalm today. And so you understand Uh, It is possible to actually walk through the most deeply troubling circumstances in your life without worrying. And by the way, uh, if this speaks to you at all, because you tend to worry about things, just know that, that Pastor Rob telling you that you can truly live without worry is the pot calling the kettle black. Because I can worry about things with the best of you, right? It's something actually God has been dealing with me about, teaching me through His Word, that there is a place of refuge in him that is so secure, worry has to wait outside. If that resonates with you, then turn with me to Psalm 2 and let's read it together. We're going to see what David has to teach us about living a life free, truly free of worry. Psalm 2, we'll begin with the first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Psalm 2 is classified as a, a, a royal psalm. It would have been one of those songs that was sung as a part of the celebration at the coronation of a new king. And yet we know from Acts 4 that it was also a prophetic song referring to Jesus Christ and his rule, which becomes increasingly obvious. As the psalm progresses, although even here in these first two verses, we see references to Jesus. The word Messiah comes from transliterating the same ancient Hebrew word for anointed, Mashiach, in the Hebrew that's used in verse 2, which is also the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word Christos, which is translated, of course, as Christ. And the nations in verse 1 was a term used in antiquity to describe the hostile Gentile nations that surrounded Israel at the time. And when David says they rage against the Lord and his anointed, the word rage is an Aramaic word, which is fitting because many of those nations surrounding Israel, those people spoke Aramaic. And so you had all of these pagan people groups surrounding God's people, the Aramaeans, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Phoenicians, the Philistines, uh, who were all, by the way, perennial enemies of Israel, plotting against the people of God. And interestingly, that word plot in verse 1 is the same Hebrew word that's translated as meditate in Psalm 1, which we looked at last week that says, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's the same word as plot here in Psalm 2. And so with the same intensity and passion and delight that God's people meditate on God's word, the nations around God's people plot, their destruction. And again, although it's, it's certainly describing the status of God's people in the time of David and the Gentile nations that surrounded them, it is also very much prophetically describing the status of God's people today and the unbelieving world around us and, and the vanity, specifically an absurdity, of the idea that somehow the kingdom of God represents bondage to the unbelieving world instead of freedom to the point that those who plot against him would say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Okay, David's saying, listen, the world hates God, but you don't have to worry. Okay, for the Gentile nations, to overthrow the anointed king over Israel would mean overthrowing God's plan for his people. And that's exactly the way that it is today. It's no different, right? If you were to, uh, if you were to pull a large number of unbelievers today, and you ask them if they hated God, right? there might be a few people who would say yes, but you understand uh, for an atheist or an unbeliever to say they hate God is to acknowledge that there is a God. And so what you're far more likely to hear over and over again by the vast majority of unbelievers when you ask them if they hate God is no. uh, No, I don't hate God because I don't believe in God. And yet the moment you begin to describe God's plan for this world, the sanctity of life, the sacredness of marriage, the bondage of sin, our need for a savior, the necessity of repentance, the cost of following Jesus, all of a sudden those same people who tell you they don't hate God are ready to go to war with you over his plan for this world. The only way to defeat God's plan for this world is to defeat God. And so whether people realize that's what they're doing or not, there is a massive effort by the secular world, which has been going on, by the way, throughout human history, right up to today, to try and overthrow the rule and reign of God himself because they see his rule as bondage. If If you look at the sexual revolution of the 60s, Roe v. Wade in the 70s, the same sex marriage movement of the 2000s, the transgender movement today, whether you agree with those movements or not, if you ask the people who are fighting for those changes in our society what they're fighting for, they will tell you it's a fight for freedom. Freedom from what? Well, at the end of the day, they're searching for freedom from God's plan for this world, at least as his word defines it, the sanctity of life, the sacredness of marriage, the bondage of sin, our need for a savior, the necessity of repentance, the cost of following Jesus. Look, much of this world is really not interested in any of that because they see all of that as oppression. Hence their response, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And look, you understand that's the world being the world. It's exactly what we should expect from the world. And so the question is, how are we supposed to respond to that? What should our response be to those who reject God and his plan for this world and his church, by the way, you and me? Should we worry ourselves to death over the social and legal changes that are happening in our country today? No. No, in fact, the only thing that accomplishes is making you miserable. And in the process of being miserable, over things we have no control over. We're showing the world that we also have no confidence in the God we say we worship to do what he said he would do in this world. So what is our response? Well, it starts with humility. As we remind ourselves, first of all, that we were all, every single one of us, we were born into this world as God-haters. Our nature Before we submitted our lives to Christ was to overthrow God, first in our own hearts and then in the world at large. The only uh, difference between us and the rest of the world is that we've accepted the free gift of grace that none of us deserves, the gift of grace that saves us. And then in that humility, we look to Christ, the Lord's anointed, as David says, with great confidence because of what he promises us, both throughout the rest of the psalm, as we'll see, and in Jesus' own words, in the Gospels, in the world, he says, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. John 16, And so we have absolutely no cause for worry about anything this world throws at us, which means as the world responds to us and God's plan for the world with hate and lies and rejection, we are able to humbly and confidently respond with love and truth and acceptance. Right? Not acceptance of sin, but acceptance of those who are bound in sin, exactly like every single one of us was at one time. You understand? Uh, listen, winning the culture war is not going to win anyone to Christ. Okay, I'm not saying we shouldn't stand up for what's right, we should. But our calling to this world is a calling to win hearts, not arguments. Which means we have to counter the hate and lies and rejection of this world with love and truth and acceptance. Listen, without worrying about the outcome. Okay, the world world hates God. We need to accept that truth and stop worrying about it and stressing about it and start loving people right where they are because that's how we make an impact in this world. Corey ten Boom once said, worry is like a rocking chair. It keeps you moving, but doesn't get you anywhere. Let's keep reading. Verses four through six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So David says, God sits in heaven and laughs. He's not laughing uh, at the sin of man, by the way. He doesn't laugh at our sin. He laughs at our arrogance in believing that we're somehow in control of this world and what happens in it. And more specifically, he laughs at the belief that through human effort, we think we can somehow eliminate God from the human experience. And as ridiculous as that sounds, especially to a church full of believers, that's exactly what humans have been trying to do from then until now. We take God out of creation. We take God out of procreation. We take God out of education. We take God out of marriage. We take God out of our laws. We take God out of every foundational mooring of our society, believing that we can somehow wrestle control away from an omnipotent, sovereign God. And it's nothing new. Throughout the centuries, people have tried to eliminate God and his kingdom, which he laughs at. In the 3rd and 4th centuries A.D., the Roman Emperor Diocletian hated Christians and Christianity. He was a God-hater, and he was good at it, and he was therefore determined to eliminate Christians, Christianity, and Christ from the face of the earth. So he persecuted the church mercilessly to the point that he actually believed he had defeated Christianity. In fact, he ordered the making of a medal with this inscription, the name of Christianity being extinguished. He also set up two monuments on the frontier of his empire with these inscriptions, his full title, Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Hercules, Caesarius Augusti, for having extended the Roman Empire in the East and the West, and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the republic to ruin. And the second monument said, Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Hercules, Caesarius, Augusti, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ, for having extended the worship of the gods. Diocletian sincerely believed that he had actually defeated God and the kingdom of Christ. Just in case you're wondering, as of today, Diocletian is long since dead and gone. He's a footnote. In the pages of history, while Jesus Christ is alive and well, his fame and glory are spread over all the earth with Christianity making up the largest religion in the world. This is exactly what David meant when he said the Lord holds them in derision. In fact, David said God laughs at. He sits in the heavens and laughs. Bible scholar James Montgomery Boyce said it this way. God does not tremble. He does not hide behind a vast celestial rampart counting the enemy and calculating whether or not he has sufficient force to counter this new challenge in his kingdom. He does not even rise from where he's sitting. He simply laughs at these great imbeciles. That's just another way of making David's point. God is in control, so you don't have to worry. You hear me? God's in control. You don't have to worry. Uh, Do you think the coronavirus is a surprise to God? What about the stock market? Does that have God on edge? What about North Korea or Iran or ISIS or all the rest of the people on earth who want us to die? Is God worried about what's going to happen to us? No, of course not. Why? Because God is in control of what happens to us. Look, certainly we can take precautions and make sensible decisions and use the intellect god gave us to be good stewards with what he's placed in our care but we don't have to worry about the final outcomes of any of those things because ultimately we are not in control of any of those things god is and look the, the world uh, man the world worries about everything just turn on the news if it's not the latest virus it's a terrorist. If it's not a terrorist, it's a meteor that might plow into our planet. If it's not a meteor, it's another nation trying to control our elections. If it's not another nation, it's one of our own political parties. If it's not a political party, it's the environment. If it's not the environment, it's our food that's killing us. If it's not our food, it's the fillings in our teeth. Look, I can go on and on and on and on today about the things this world really wants us to worry about. When in truth... Worrying about those things is killing far more people than those things themselves. Now here's the craziest part about all of that. The one thing we can control in all of that, the only thing we can control in all of that is whether or not we worry about all of that. Yet here we are, the people who belong to the God who is in complete control of everything, worrying ourselves to death over things we have no control over. It makes absolutely no sense, not for us. Right now, look, for the world, listen, the rest of the world has good reason to worry because unbelievers don't have the hope of Christ that we have. Okay, The world is right to worry, but not us. Not us, because we have the answer to everything this world worries about, which means we have nothing to worry about because our God is in control. I just wonder is that the message people see being lived out in your life each day? I ask myself this question often when you're going through something difficult, some challenge in your life, when Uh, You're facing some unknown. Is it obvious to others that you're not worried because of the confidence you have in Christ and in His sovereignty? Look, uh, not just His sovereignty over this world, but His sovereignty over every single moment of your life. Is that what other people see in you? Or do they see someone who says they trust in God? And yet in practice, you worry about things in your life just as much as every other unbeliever does. Because look, if if worry is something you excel at, and I'm preaching to myself here, if you're good at worrying about everything, then honestly, what message are we sharing with the unbelieving world when we say we believe in a God who's in control of everything, and yet we don't actually trust Him enough to not worry about anything? Elizabeth Elliot points out, worry is the antithesis of trust. You simply cannot do both. They are mutually exclusive. Let's keep reading. Verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the prophetic nature of this psalm becomes more and more pronounced as it progresses, which is further confirmed, by the New Testament writers who quote this passage actually in several places, the author of Hebrews quotes it as evidence of the deity of Jesus and his superiority and rule over all of the angels in Hebrews one five. As well, uh, there are three instances in the Book of Revelation where it's referenced: once concerning the victorious Christian, Revelation two twenty six through twenty eight, which is a significant point. We're going to come back to that one, and then twice concerning the Christ in both Revelation twelve five in 1915. And if you read it uh, in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, where verse 9 says, You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The Septuagint translates the word break as rule, with the rod being a, it was a known symbol at the time of governmental authority and power, which we find as early as Genesis 49.10, and iron, of course, being a symbol of strength, which we see referenced in Jeremiah 118. The point being, this passage in the psalm isn't just about the destruction of an enemy in battle. It's about the total victory and final rule over the entire earth by Jesus Christ, which is beautifully summed up in Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And His Good as that is, it gets even better, as expressed in Revelation 2:26 through28 again, also in Revelation 3:21, uh, which point out that we who belong to Christ, we actually get to rule with him. <laughs> so yes, this psalm is applied to David's rule over Israel, but it is obviously much, much more than that. It's not only a song about David's victory over his enemies and his rule over Israel. It's a song about the final and complete victory over our enemy and the fact that through Christ we have authority and power to rule over our enemy's efforts to defeat us, not only in eternity, but in our daily lives now. You see, God wins, which means you don't have to worry. The Apostle Paul said, "...though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging a war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh." but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. If you're a Christian, you've been given authority to stand against every attack of the enemy who wants you, by the way, to live in a constant state of worry. Because if you're worried, that means you doubt the identity and ability of Jesus Christ to be who he said he was and to do what he promised he would do. You understand, that's all worry is. It's us having doubts about God. And so because the enemy tries to sow confusion into your life to get you to worry about whether or not you're making the right decisions or going the right direction in your life, God gave you his word to clear up any confusion. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, And because the enemy tries to afflict you spiritually, demonically, actually, to create turmoil, worry, conflict in your life, God gave you his spirit to exercise power over every spiritual affliction. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you're from God and have overcome them. You have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. 1 John 4, 3 and 4. And because we have all these needs in our lives, physical needs, uh, emotional needs, intellectual needs that the enemy wants to exploit to keep you in a perpetual state of want, of lack, in order to burden you with stress and worry, to make you doubt God's ability to provide for you. God gave you, therefore, prayer to provide for your every need. In the morning, as he, Jesus, was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, If you have faith, and do not doubt. You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Matthew 21, 18 through 22. You understand you've been given all of these gifts of God to defeat the enemy's attacks in your life. His word, his spirit, His power in prayer to provide direction, protection, provision in your life for every single need. Now tell me again what it is you're worried about. Because His word says God wins. And if you belong to Christ, that means you win. There's no power on earth or in hell below that can defeat your life or God's purposes in your life. In fact, the only person who can keep you from realizing all that God created for you in your life is you. Pastor and evangelist Lee Robertson once said, worry is nothing but practical infidelity. The person who worries reveals his lack of trust in God, that he's trusting too much in self. Let's finish the psalm, verse 10 to the end. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So in this final stanza, David paints a sobering picture of the choice that every one of us has to make at some point in this life. Serve the Lord with fear or perish in the way. Which is actually uh, it's actually more of an invitation than it is an ultimatum, as he invites even his enemies, former God-haters, to enter his kingdom, to become a part of his own family, to rule with him, and best of all, to take refuge in him. And when you do that, what you once saw as offensive in your life, as, as bondage, namely the gospel, now becomes security. And bliss, As British Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner once said of God, he said, there is no refuge from him, only in him. Okay, when you take refuge in God, you don't have to worry. And of all people, right, of all people, David would know. He was hunted by Saul for years. Some, some say as long as seven years. Some say a decade or more. Right? Can you imagine the amount of stress that David must have been under, the pressure that he endured for so long, running for his very life from Saul and later from others, day after day, month after month, year after year, wondering each day if that would be his last on this earth. The truth is we can't imagine it. We've no idea what that must have been like, and yet David knew that he couldn't just run away from his enemies in order to find refuge, he had to run to something. He had to run to God because it is only in him that any of us can ever truly find refuge, freedom from all worry. Your bank account cannot shelter you from every storm in life that comes your way. I'm sorry, it doesn't matter how financially prepared you are. The power of positive thinking and good vibes will not sustain you through great times of loss. A new relationship will not heal all the wounds from past relationships. Creating a new routine alone will not bring you freedom from old bondages. Your own willpower will not be enough to power you through life's harshest struggles. Okay, when your life is completely turned upside down, the only thing This world can offer you at best is temporary distractions from the troubles you face. The truth is, the direction and protection and provision and rest and healing and freedom and hope, all of the things that you need to navigate this life, true freedom from all worry, that only comes when you take refuge in Christ. It's why the Apostle Paul said, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3, 2 and 3. It's not enough to try and distance ourselves, to try and run away from all of the things that worry us. We must run in to Christ to find refuge, true refuge from every single worry in this life. 17th century Welsh poet and priest, George uh, George Herbert, once wrote, a hundred load of worry will not pay an ounce of debt. Truth is, worry has never accomplished one good thing in this world or in your life. It is nothing more than a tool of the enemy to try and steal your life away from you, to tear you down, to wear you out, ultimately to kill you. And it starts by doubting the God who has actually saved you from ever having to worry about anything ever again. And and what the craziest part is, the fact that we still choose to worry. Instead of choosing the refuge that he offers us in him by simply trusting that he is who he says he is, and that he's going to do what he said he would do. Instead, we choose to doubt all of that and worry. And it's look, it's killing us. It's killing our ability to fulfill our calling. It's killing our potency to minister to others. It's killing our bodies and our minds, and it is killing our witness to the world that Jesus can actually be trusted. Worry is a choice you know what? So is taking refuge in Christ. Even though the unbelieving world hates God and wants to try and eliminate him from our lives, he's still in control. And having secured the victory over our enemy who wants to destroy us, he's invited us in to seek refuge in him where every need is met and every wound is healed and every promise is fulfilled. A place so secure Worry has to wait outside, which is not the case for the unbeliever. The unbelieving world has plenty to worry about because outside of Christ there is no peace, there is no provision, there is no protection, there is no freedom, there is no rest, there is no healing, and there is no hope. But in Christ, in Him, we have all of that and more because he is who he says he is and he fulfills every single promise he has ever made. So for us, listen, for us it all boils down to a simple choice. Continue to worry about things that you have no control over or take refuge in Christ where you don't have to worry ever again. Let's pray.